Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can draw near to you. We thank you that we can come to you in prayer through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you listen to us and we thank you that you speak to us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every part of it. And Lord, we pray that we may be having ears this morning to listen to what you have to say. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit may work upon our hearts. Open our ears and our minds to the truths contained here in this word. Lord, we pray that we may humble ourselves as we hear our Father's voice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what does it mean to be foolish? What do you think of when you think of a fool? When I think of the word fool, I usually think of uh, the clown that usually shows up in Shakespeare's plays. If you read any of Shakespeare's plays or have seen any of his plays performed, often they will have a fool. The king will be there and he'll have some sort of fool in his court who is there to amuse him. And of course we know of clowns that have come about in our lives at different points. You think back to your school days and I'm sure few of us in this room wouldn't be able to think of a class clown in our classes that we had. It may not have been in every year, but I think I, I can think even now of a particular boy at school who was indeed the class clown. Never took anything particularly seriously, but was always very amusing to have around. And I even see this now as my son has started school this year in his class. What, lo and behold, emerged in his class? A class clown. Uh, and, of course, Josh really liked this little boy, and we're not quite sure how good an influence it was for my son to have such a good friendship with this class clown. But we recognise that these people are what we would have been called in the past a fool, uh, someone that is there to keep others amused. What does it mean to be a fool? Is that the usual understanding? Is that the correct meaning of the word fool? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we look at Psalm 14. Psalm 14, we're going to be looking at together this morning and considering the concept of foolishness. What does it mean to be a fool? So I encourage you to have your Bibles open to page 538, 538, as we look at Psalm 14 together. This is just a one-off psalm throughout uh, uh, that I'll be preaching on uh, in my sermon series that we've been going through, John 4. Then we took a break for Christmas, and I worked through Isaiah 9. And before and next week, we'll have a communion sermon, and so then we'll pick up in John 4 the week after the second week of January. So I needed just a one-off sermon uh, to tide us over into the new year. And this morning, I thought it would be helpful to look at Psalm 14, and what does it mean to be a fool? And so the first thing that we understand in this psalm is that a fool is someone who denies God. A fool is someone who denies God. And that's my first main point. If you want to follow my main points this morning, they're listed there on the back of the church bulletin. And my first is that the foolish deny God. The foolish deny God. And we see that in verse 1 of Psalm 14. Verse 1 of Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, it's interesting how the fool says this about God. doesn't say it out loud. He says it within his heart. We live in an age where to say out loud that there is no God is not particularly, it's not frowned upon, it's not looked down upon. There are many very vocal atheists in our society. Some are very popular. 
and we have these militant atheists that we know about, like the likes of Richard Dawkins over in England. And they're not afraid to say with their mouths, not simply in their hearts, that there is no God. But the fool is someone that can even say it within. A fool can be someone who says in their heart that there is no God. How can you tell if someone is saying within their heart that there is no God? I mean, we can tell quite clearly that the likes of Richard Dawkins would be considered to be a fool by Psalm 14, by the Lord in his assessment of Richard Dawkins. He would say, yes, he is a fool because he says out loud that there is no God. And so clearly within his heart, he says there is no God. But how can you tell if someone is a fool and denies God in their heart if it is within their heart that they say that? They don't say it with their lips, but they say it within their heart. Are you supposed to get some sort of scan of their heart? If we take some sort of x-ray or ultrasound of their heart, an MRI maybe, we'll be able to tell if someone is a fool whether they're saying within their heart that there is no God. Or maybe open them up, cut them open as to do a heart transplant of some sort and look inside and we can tell whether there's a fool present before us because of the way we can see their heart. How can you tell? I mean, it's ridiculous to think that we can tell what someone is saying in their heart isn't it? How can we tell if someone is denying God in their heart? Well, Jesus actually gives us a a test to tell if someone is corrupt in their heart, a test to tell if someone is corrupt in their heart. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. How can you tell if someone's foolish, if someone is denying God in their heart? All the evidence from creation points to the existence of God, that he is there, he is an eternal God, he has great power, and then of course his word tells us that he is there. How can we tell if someone is denying within their heart that there is such a God? Well, Jesus says it's by the way that they speak. Out of their heart, their speech comes out. Out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. And so we can tell with someone like Richard Dawkins that he is someone who denies God in his heart because out of his mouth, he then says that there is no God. But we may not say that there is no God, but we may by our mouths and the way that we speak to those around us indicate that there is a denial of God in our heart. There is a denial. We don't believe that there is indeed a God. Because when someone sins against God, they're demonstrating that they don't actually believe in their heart that God exists, or at least the God that is proclaimed in the Scriptures, that there is a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and a just and holy God. If each of us in this room truly believe that, that there's a God out there who knows everything that we do and has great power and is also a just God and he punishes people who sin against him, there's no way on earth we would ever sin again. We would ever rebel against him. But if we sin if our mouth speaks hate towards those around us, if our mouth says lies to those around us, it shows that in our hearts we believe that there is no God, that something is wrong at the heart level if we're going to say bad things with our mouths because bad things come from the bad within us. 
that denial of God's existence. So what sort of things should you look for if you're going to see whether someone is an atheist of the heart? Well, that brings me to my second main point this morning. The foolish are corrupt. The foolish deny God, but then they also show corruption in their lives. What sort of things should you see if you are looking for a fool, someone who denies the existence of God? Well, we see that in verse 1. It says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. If someone is corrupt in the way that they behave, uh, the idea is the concept of spoiled fruit, as I mentioned with the kids' talk. There's corruption there. And we see corruption, of course, in different levels in our society, in uh, the government levels, in the police forces, uh, even in the workplace. You can see corruption there. Uh, That's how you know whether someone is a fool by the way that they act corruptly. Their deeds are vile, it says there in verse 1. And it says that they don't do any good in verse 1 as well. There is no one who does good. If someone does bad and doesn't do good, you know that they're an atheist within the heart, that they're a corrupt person. We also see that the atheist, the person who says there is no God within his heart, doesn't understand, Uh, he doesn't seek God. In verse 2 it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand Any who seek God. This is a person who's not interested in considering God. Doesn't praise God, doesn't pray to God, doesn't speak about God, is not interested in being with others and hearing about God. They have turned aside, it says there in verse 3, from such matters. Also the idea of corruption comes up again in verse 3. They have together become corrupt. Then the idea that no one does good uh, is there in verse 3 as well. We looked at that. It says there in verse 1 as well in this psalm that there is no one who does good in verse 1, but also in verse 3 it reminds us there is no one who does good, not even one. And then it goes on to say that they are evildoers, once again, and never learning, uh, that they don't understand, they don't grow in their understanding at all. It says there in verse 4, will evildoers never learn? And then it goes on to say something interesting about the people who deny God in their heart. What's the same verse 4 about fools? They're those who devour my people as men eat bread. They're those who devour my people as men eat bread. It's a very interesting concept there, that they devour God's people as men eat bread, that they are attacking God's people in such a way that it's basically a common occurrence to them. What do you do with bread as you eat bread if that's said about you it's something that you do every day particularly in this society where they didn't have all the kinds of food we have so many options it's so wonderful to be able to say what are we having for dinner in the past people used to be like that would be a stupid question because of course we're going to have what we had last night and what we had the night before and what we had the night before that there wasn't the the abundance of different types of food, that's one of the great things about living in a society where there's so many cultures from other lands have come and you've got Indian food, you've got Thai food, you've got um, the Australian types of food as well, you've got Italian food. I'm so grateful for the Italians with their pizza and their gelato that they have uh, brought that to Australia. There are so many types of food, but just consider this with these people here. As they eat bread, as they eat food, every day... It's just something you don't even think about, that you just have your meal. You aren't particularly concerned about it. And that's how these foolish people are acting towards God's people. They devour them, they attack them as a daily occurrence that we don't even think about. We oppress the poor, we oppress those people who are followers of God. And we don't even care that we're doing it. 
It's become just a daily routine that we do, like eating bread. That's what a fool looks like. And then in verse 4 it says again that they do not call on the Lord, they do not seek the Lord. It even says that they're so ignorant in the way that they won't learn is that they are overwhelmed with dread in verse 5. There they are, overwhelmed with dread, for they understand that God is present in the company of the righteous. They actually are fearful about God at times whilst they're going on and acting like they don't believe he exists. People can be fearful at times and fearful that there is a God who is there watching over them, but they don't change their ways. They continue to act as practical atheists. They continue to do actions that they know God does not like, even in the midst of their fear. And then in verse 6 again, it says that they are evildoers, that they do evil and frustrate the plans of the poor. They actually take advantage of people who are less uh, well-off than them, who do not have the same benefits. They take advantage of them and oppress them because poorer people are often the easiest people to get things from. Talk about taking candy from a baby. And why do you take candy from a baby? Because the baby can't do much to resist. And that's how some people treat the poor. It's a terrible thing to take candy from a baby. The poor baby can't do much to defend itself and it doesn't have much access to candy. And if it's got candy, why would you take the candy off the poor little baby? But that's how people treat poor people. They see them as an opportunity for plunder, that these people can't resist me. They don't have enough money and resources and power to resist me, and so I will take advantage of them and plunder them. And that is someone who denies God in their heart. If they truly believe that there was an all-powerful God who watches over the poor and holds them to account for their actions, they wouldn't dare take advantage of the poor. But because they start with an unbelief in God, then that enables them to then think it's okay to plunder the poor, to take advantage of them. So these are the practical atheists. These are people who are atheists of the heart. They may not say it with their mouths, but the way they live shows that they certainly do deny the existence of God. So who are these awful people? Well, the psalm tells us that the foolish are everywhere. And that's my third main point this morning. The foolish are everywhere. When we read Psalm 14, it's very easy to read a text like this and go, oh yes, they're, they're to- horrible people. And to think of people that we would see overseas maybe, terrorists, acts of violence that we see on the television set, we think, oh yes, they're the f- They're the fools. We understand that foolishness is corruption. Foolish is those who do evil. And so we see those people and say, yes, they are fools. Or maybe we come a little closer to home and say, "Uh, my boss is a fool. I can clearly see that Psalm 14 is talking about him. He's corrupt in so many ways. He never uh, pays me what I'm due. And so I can see that this psalm is talking about him, that he's a fool And so I should be uh, content in my assessment of him, that the Lord also has a similar assessment of him. He's an evildoer. Or maybe a family member you don't like particularly. They're certainly an evildoer, and so they are considered to be foolish by God. But the psalm tells us that there is no one who isn't a fool, that everyone is a fool, that they are everywhere. We don't consider ourselves to be foolish, but that is the truth that is proclaimed by this psalm. What does it say in Psalm 14 about how prevalent foolishness is? Look with me at verse 1. It says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. There's no one who does good. And then to emphasize this point, we read in verse 2. 
the Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. We've got this picture of God looking down on earth and looking down to see, is there anyone here who understands, anyone who seeks me, anyone who is not a fool? And what's the conclusion? Verse 3, all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. All have turned aside, verse 3. They have together, there's a group of them, they're all together there, and they're all becoming corrupt. And there is no one who does good, not even one. Not even one. And it's not as though God's looking down on a certain group of people and thinking, are there any people who, here who aren't fools? It's interesting how it's described in verse 2 as God looks down. Who does he look down on? It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men. On the sons of men. What's another phrase that happens in the Old Testament again and again when it talks about sons? It says, the sons of Israel. The sons of Israel. The sons of Israel. He doesn't look down on the sons of Israel here. He looks down on the sons of men. Who are the sons of men? Everyone. We are all humans. We are all children descended right back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. We are all sons of men. And so God isn't looking down on the sons of Israel to see if there's anyone who's not foolish amongst the Israelites. He's looking down on all nations. He's looking down on the sons of men. And what is his conclusion? There's not even one who does good. Not even one. And so we see that everyone is foolish by this text. There is no one who seeks God. And this is a passage that's picked up in the New Testament, that passage that we had read for us earlier from Romans chapter 3, where Paul, the Apostle Paul makes this point from this psalm that everyone is foolish. Turn with me there to page 1114. Page 1114. Page 1114. And I'll read from verse 10. Well, I'll read from verse 9, actually. Verse 9, 1,114. What shall we, then, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? He's asking, are, any Jew, are Jews any better than the Gentiles, the non-Jews? He says, not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Everybody's under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands no one who seeks God. Where's he quoting from? Psalm 14. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then he goes on to quote other passages from the Old Testament. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he continues. The Apostle Paul stops quoting and he starts to say his own things. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world, the whole world, held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. What does the Bible tell us about the depravity of man? It tells us that we are all depraved. We have all sinned against God. We are all evildoers. We all take advantage of those around us. We don't love those that we should love. 
We don't seek God as we should. We are all practical atheists. At times we may say we believe in God, but the way that we act definitely shows that we don't truly believe that God is the one who watches over us. So what is the solution to this foolishness? If we're universally foolish, and that includes myself up here, I'm not trying to stand up here and think that I'm so wise and everybody else is an evildoer and I'm not an evildoer. I know from my own life that I'm an evildoer. It amazes me. What I profess with my mouth about God, but then my actions show something else is going on within my heart. What is the answer to this foolishness? That we're all class clowns in one way. How do we break out from this foolishness? Is it through education? That's often put forward that if we just educate people, they will not be so corrupt, they will not be so vile, they will not do such evil. If we just educate them, Or is it opportunity? If they just had greater opportunities, people wouldn't do those things. Or if they just had greater financial success, if they had more money, if we just give some money to to these people, wouldn't that solve all our problems? If we just, in the Middle East, we just sent over a lot of aid money, everybody over there would live a lot nicer lives and they would stop doing any sort of evil actions. If we threw money at it, wouldn't that help? Maybe we need to just act more nicely to these people, act nicely to them. Or some people might say, well, what we need to do with fools is go to war with them. And it may be that we need to not educate them but brainwash them. We need to be a bit stronger with our influence upon them, maybe punish them. We've got a fool there who's doing evil, punish him, and then he'll learn. Maybe it's just eradicate the fools from the earth. Mass murder, get rid of them. By killing them off, and you can see that with some totalitarian regimes, that's the way they deal with the foolish problem, corruption in their government. They just execute person after person. Maybe it's to get rid of those people that we don't think would be very helpful in society. And it can be through mass murder, it can be through eugenics and different types. People think that this is the way to get rid of foolishness from the land. Or maybe we should just give up. Everybody's a fool. There's no way of actually solving the foolish problem. Everybody's an evildoer. No one seeks God. Let's just give up. Well, the Bible, and this passage in particular, does give us a hint that salvation can come to the foolish. And that's my third main point this morning. The foolish can be saved. The foolish can be saved. What is the solution? Well, verse 7 of Psalm 14 tells us, that there is a way that salvation can come. What does it say in verse 7? Page 538. If you're still in Romans, flip with me back to page 538. Keep a finger in Romans if you can. We'll jump back there in a second. But Psalm 14, verse 7 says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Verse 7 hints that salvation could come. That salvation will come from where? Where would salvation come from? It would come for Israel out of Zion. Where's Zion? Well, generally it's understood to be Jerusalem or even more specifically the Temple Mount where that is in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount that is in Jerusalem is known as Zion. And there's a hint that something will happen from there in verse 7 as well. It says, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. When the Lord 
restores the fortunes of his people. The fortunes of God's people will be restored. It's just a case of when will that happen. So how does salvation come from Mount Zion for foolishness? How does salvation come to slow that corruption that, has, that is so prevalent in the earth? Well, it did come from Mount Zion. Many centuries later, after this psalm was written, after David was long past, salvation came out of Zion. And it came in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this world. He came and lived in Israel. And then he died right there on that temple mount. Just outside the city, he was taken and he was crucified there. And salvation comes through him. That the punishment that we deserve for our foolishness, for all the evil that we have done, for all the times that we haven't sought God as we should, Jesus paid the penalty for that for us. And that's what Romans 3 says to us. Flip with me back there to page 1114. Page 1114, Romans chapter 3. We see Paul quote from Psalm 14 to demonstrate that everybody is foolish, everybody has turned away from God. There is no one righteous. And then what does he say? In verse 21, after we've read all these texts that say that we're all foolish, what does he say in verse 21? But now, but now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. One of my favorite preachers has a whole sermon on those two words at the beginning of verse 21. But now, saying, isn't this marvelous? Everybody is depraved, but now something has happened that gives us hope, that gives us salvation. And what is that? A righteousness from God has come. That is apart from the law. It's been made known to us, but which the law and the prophets testify. What's going on there where he's saying about the law there? He's saying that we know that the law which says don't do evil, demonstrates that we're all evil. And so if we're to have salvation, it has to come from apart from the law. It can't be by our acts because if we're all evil, then we can't do right and we need salvation to come from another place. And so all the law does is make us conscious of sin. And that's what he says in verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous, right in God's sight, by observing the law Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. As we read Psalm 14, what happens? We become conscious of how bad we actually are. But now a righteousness comes that's apart from the law, which the law and the prophets testify to, it says in verse 21, and which includes Psalm 14. Psalm 14 testifies to a salvation coming, but it's not by your actions. How does it come? Verse 22 tells us. This is a, this is a marvelous passage, Romans 3.21 to 26, basically. It's the heart of the Bible for many people. Um, this is the meat. This is what the Bible is all about. What does it say in verse 22? This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what does it say in verse 22? We're all sinners, but verse 24, sorry, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him, that's Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. 
He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How are we right in God's eyes? How can we be saved? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And what has Jesus done? Verse 25 tells us, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Sacrifice of atonement, the the literal translation of that word in Greek that's translated sacrifice of atonement is, we usually have it as propitiation. It's a, a sacrifice of propitiation, which means that it's a sacrifice where there's wrath from a God and you give something that quenches the wrath of God. And that's what's happened with Jesus Christ. When he was there on the cross, he was a sacrifice for God's wrath that was coming upon us because of our evil action, because of our foolishness. But if we trust that Jesus Christ died for us, then Jesus is that sacrifice for us. Instead of us being punished for our sins, Jesus is punished for our sins instead. And that is a wonderful thing, that all it is is by faith. It says there again and again, it comes by faith. Verse 22, this righteousness from God, righteousness, which we don't have ourselves, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. If you simply believe in Jesus, you can have this righteousness. Verse 25 says it as well. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in what? Through faith in his blood. As we read Psalm 14, we can get pretty depressed. We can see that we are an atheist in our heart. We can see by the actions that we do that we are an atheist in our heart, that we're practical atheists so much of the time. But salvation has come from Zion. Salvation has come, and it's come in Jesus Christ. And if you believe that, then there is a joy that comes. What did Psalm 14 say? If salvation comes from Zion, oh, that salvation would come from Zion. And then it says in verse... 7 of chapter of Psalm 14 when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad Psalm 14 is depressing as you consider that you're a fool but then once you understand that salvation has come from Zion what does that lead you to do it leads you to rejoice and be glad as it says there in verse 7 because it's no longer about you observing the law by which you're made righteous it's simply by trusting in Jesus Christ And so the weight of the law is taken off because Christ has fulfilled the law on your behalf. So as we come to a new year, do you want to be wiser than last year? Do you want to not be as foolish as you were last year? Foolish in the sense of the corruption that comes, not necessarily the class clown. It is nice to be able to joke around at times and to have some fun. And, uh, and I think a minister generally needs a good sense of humour if he's to able to get through to people and to um, take his job... A, he can take his job a little too seriously at times. You need a sense of humour. But there is a foolishness that can be in our lives that's a different type of foolishness altogether, and that's the foolishness that's spoken of in Psalm 14, this corruption, moral corruption that's in us. Do you want to be a little less morally corrupt in the new year? Well, it starts by faith in Jesus Christ. It starts in the heart. If you want to be nicer to those around you, then you need to believe in God first and foremost. You need to believe in his existence and you need to believe 
that you have been washed through Jesus Christ's blood shed at the cross. And if you do that, then this year will be far better than the last year. This year coming, I should say. We're not there yet. 2016 will be far better because you have faith in God and from that faith will spring acts of righteousness done by the power of Jesus Christ. And so there'll be much reason to be rejoicing and to be glad, as it says there in Psalm 14. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, do it now. Because if you're not doing that, then you are behaving as a fool. And that's a terrible position to be in. Because God won't simply look down from heaven forever. One day he will return from heaven. Jesus Christ will come and he will punish those who do not seek him. Seek him now and seek him by faith. Let's come to God in prayer. Let us speak to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm, even though it tells us a truth that we do not want to hear, that we are all foolish. We've all rebelled against you. We've all denied you in our heart and then even by our actions. Lord, we pray that we would not do so. We pray that you may grant salvation to us from our foolishness. Through Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that we may be considered righteous in your eyes instead of unrighteous. And Lord, we pray that when we recognize that Jesus has paid it all for us, that we will then rejoice, that we will be glad because salvation has come from Zion and we have an eternal hope where we will rejoice with you for all of eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.